Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. It's Monday, March 26, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. Find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter, or on Facebook, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. I was recently at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It's one of my favorite museums in the world. It's a massive complex of indoor and outdoor marine exhibits blending the close line directly into the museum. But my favorite part is a dark hideaway tucked away in the corner of the museum, the jellyfish exhibit. The electric lighting, the elegance of their movement, the otherworldliness of it all, I found the jellyfish utterly captivating and much different than my childhood impression of jellyfish of, you know, stinging menaces and that you should pee on those things, which is totally not true, by the way. Uh, and my experience there is why we're talking jellyfish this week with Julie Burwald. Julie is a science writer and an author of a new book called Spineless. It's a mix of her own personal journeys and a deep dive into the world of jellyfish. We explore everything from jellyfish as a source of food to those huge jellyfish blooms you might have heard about in the news. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Julie Burwald. Julie Burwald, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm so thrilled to be here. I have to say, I don't think much about jellyfish, but I had this experience maybe, wow, it was like two decades ago when I first went to the Monterey Bay Aquarium and saw their stunning jellyfish exhibit, which kind of expanded that idea that they were just this thing that would wash ashore and you'd have to be careful of being stung by. But there were these beautiful creatures that had a grace to them and that there were so many different varieties and um, that they would, they had coloration and, and almost in a weird way, um, a personality. Uh, I'm curious what turned you towards jellyfish. It wasn't that, which is so interesting because a lot of the scientists I talked to, it was that. It's what you just mentioned, like this incredible beauty that drew them in. But for me, it was, it was the scientific question. And um, what happened was I was working um, – for National Geographic, and I was fact-checking an article that Elizabeth Colbert had written about um, ocean, uh, ocean acidification, which is 
you know, happening, which when, when carbon dioxide mixes with water, it forms this weak acid. And so our oceans are becoming more acidified and that dissolve, uh, makes it harder for animals with shells to build shells. And as they do, National Geographic had this winners and losers in a future acidified ocean graphic. And on the winner's side, there were these jellyfish. And I thought, is that real? And how much do we know about that? And I, I dug into the scientific literature and what I discovered was that there had been just, you know, like two studies done on one part of the jellyfish's life cycle that suggested they might be okay, but maybe not. But what I also found was this incredible debate about what was happening to jellyfish in our world today because of not just ocean acidification, but warming and coastal development and overfishing and, you know, uh, boat transport thing ballast water transport and digging up the bottom of the oceans with nets, all the things that we're doing to the ocean were impacting jellyfish in ways that looked like they were going to be good for jellyfish. But there was a lot of scientists saying, we don't know for sure because our baseline is really bad for jellyfish. And um, that's because in the 20th century, we studied the oceans using nets and winches, which destroy jellyfish on the way up. So our baseline's really bad, and we can't get that back. So this debate, this question of what's really happening with jellyfish and how much are humans impacting that was like something I just couldn't let go of. So before we delve into the debate, I think we should start with some basic biology, because as you alluded to, jellyfish are relatively recently studied. It, I mean, there isn't you know hundreds and hundreds of years of, of research data, data on it. Let's start with just the the basic biology first is how do they they grow and develop? What's the life cycle of a jellyfish? Yeah, and let me just say that there is a long history of jellyfish science. It's just that the 20th century there was a huge gap. So like people were studying jellyfish for hundreds of years back when we were studying things in a more slow way like with nets and you know, hand nets and sailboats. But once we started going fast is when we lost our ability. We stopped studying jellyfish. So there, it's more like there's this hole in jellyfish science. Yeah, but they have a super interesting life cycle. The, um, the medusa is either male or female. That's the medusa is the part you know, you know, the swimming jellyfish. And it produces an egg or a sperm, which fertilizes and becomes a larvae, which is just, it's called a planula. And it's teeny, it's like tic-tac with... Um, fur on it. And those are, you know, little cilia. And it doesn't live very long. It lives a day or two. And then it settles. It likes to land on the underside of things. So underneath, you know, the, the top of the roof of a cave or something like that. And it will grow into uh, what's called a polyp. And a polyp is really very similar to a very, very small sea anemone. So it's like kind of cup-shaped or tube-shaped with tentacles and just a mouth in the middle of that circle of tentacles. And it can live as a polyp for, well, I, the truth is nobody really knows because because of this big gap of, of not knowing much about jellyfish in the whole 20th century. Um, in the lab, they've kept them for, a, you know, about a dozen years. In the wild, there's probably some evidence that suggests they could live for 30 years. So Holy it's cow. a, yeah, so it's a big mystery. The polyps, the polyps are the, a huge mystery in jellyfish science. There's, Maybe, I mean, depending on how you count jellyfish, there's, say, 2,500 species of, no, of named jellyfish. And um, they've only found about two dozen of their polyps in the wild. So it's this huge question, like, where are all the polyps? 
And what do they do out there? Like, how long do they live? And what eats them? All those things are unknown. Anyway, back to its life cycle. Um, what happens is the polyp will experience some sort of environmental change. And again, this is not well understood, but in the lab, a change in salinity or temperature can do it. And what happens is it slices itself horizontally into like a stack of pancakes. And then the top pancake will sort of start wiggling and jiggling and, you know, doing a little kind of dance and it pops off the top of the stack. And then it's free swimming. And at this point, it's called an ephyra. But then the next pancake in the stack starts wiggling and jiggling, doing its thing, and it pops off. So essentially, all of those pancakes pop off and each one becomes an ephyra. So one polyp can become, you know, somewhere between a dozen or two dozen ephyra. And one one polyp also can divide, it can clone itself and become a field of polyps. So the reason why we see jellyfish in these huge blooms is because just one planula larvae can become thousands of medusa. And uh, yeah, so that's why they have, they're really fascinating life cycle. That's incredible. And you also highlight, it gets even weirder than that because you highlight in your book, um, adults that actually reverse back into polyps uh, so, so that they can continue a a life cycle almost uh, you know to infinity yes yeah, so there's one jellyfish that's really famous for that it's called turritopsis and it's it very often can go from the medusa stage to the polyp stage without going through the sexual reproduction part. So essentially, it can live forever going back and forth between polyp and medusa. But they actually have found recently that the moon jellyfish, which is, you know, that really common jellyfish that um, you'll see it really often in aquaria, it has sort of a four-leaf clover on the top of it. That one can, it seems like it might be able to go from Medusa to polyp also. And certainly they've discovered that one tentacle from a moon jelly can become a polyp. So there's, there's lots of flexibility in this crazy life cycle also. There's the, the giant jellyfish that I chased in Japan that can grow to be 500 pounds. It does a crazy thing where its polyps actually walk along the seafloor, leaving behind a little piece of its foot. And that foot is kind of like a seed. It's called a podocyst. And it, it, it can just hang out in this like little seed form for a dozen years. Or People, again, don't know. And then it'll just bloom and become a polyp. So it's So there's a ton of things that jellyfish can do that make them really... Um, you know, give them a lot of options in a world that's changing very quickly. You know, we always talk about human reproduction being so intricate and complicated at times. It is nothing compared to the animal world. (laughs) You're so right. (laughs) You're totally right. Yeah. Uh, How do jellyfish move? I mean, it's one of the, this basic question. You always thought they just moved by sort of pumping themselves, but it gets more complicated than that. For sure. Yeah. They, um, yeah, I, I love this story. I, I was talking to these jellyfish scientists at Woods, Woods Hole, or no, sorry, at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole. Um, they were trying to make jellyfish robots for the Navy. And um, they put this jellyfish in a tank, a, a robotic one. It was made out of silicone. And, you know, it, it like squeezed shut the way that jellyfish do, you know, and it moved forward. And then it opened up, it relaxed its muscles and, and opened up again, like, you know, how an umbrella opens. And it, it went right back to the 
place where it had started. And they were like, well, that's not how a jellyfish moves. And they turned it on again and it squeezed forward and moved forward and opened up and went back to its original space like a yo-yo. So up back and forth. And then this graduate student said, you know, that peplum, that that little flap around the edge of the jellyfish bell, I made one out of silicone, but I didn't have time to glue it on. Maybe we should do that. So they pull it out of the water and they glue on that flap and they turn it on again and it squeezes shut and it goes forward and it opens like an umbrella and it continues moving forward and it squeezes shut and moves forward. So it turns out that that flap does everything um, in terms of driving the jellyfish forward through the, um, through the ocean. And it does it, you know, uh, muscle free. There's no muscles doing anything in that flap. It's just bending as a consequence of the jellyfish squeezing shut. And, um, and it really is, it's the propulsive force that drives the jellyfish forward. And in fact, they did a bunch more research through several years on that. And it turns out that flap kind of generates these, this um, pressure system around, a, around the jellyfish so that there's low pressure in front of the jellyfish's bell on top. And so the jellyfish is actually creating a system that sucks itself through the water instead of pushing it the way that we think about moving on land. And if you look around the in the ocean at everything, you'll see that everything kind of has that bend to it. And the whole reason for the bend is to create a low pressure in the front that can suck aquatic animals through the water. And uh, we just had never really thought about it that way because we're so terrestrial. And are engineers actually using that information to design new ROVs and underwater instrumentation that that might be able to take advantage of this? No, you know, the, the, those scientists have been saying for, cause this this came out about two years ago, and they've been saying, like, we should start designing underwater vehicles that do take advantage of it. But I haven't seen that come out yet. So um, it's there for the taking, though. Oh, all right. There's yeah, a business idea exactly. right there. <laughs> uh, jellyfish, as as many people know, are mostly water there, there's only maybe 5% of their total that's like solid stuff. And, and I'm curious if out of that solid stuff, how much of that is nerve structure and how intelligent are these actual creatures, which are mostly just empty space or just water? That's a good question. I'm not sure if I know how much is nerve structure. Um, very, very little. <laughs> Uh, the 5% that is not water is mostly collagen. And it's very similar to the collagen that we have in our skin. And so there are businesses, speaking of businesses, that are looking to use jellyfish collagen uh, for medical and biomedical purposes. In terms of the nerves, the way their nervous system is built is it's sort of like a net, like a very fine the way it was first described in the 1880s is a very fine Muslim mesh that, that is around all the way around the bell. Um, but there's places where it's intense, more intense, and that is around the edge of the bell. And if you're ever at an aquarium and you are looking at jellyfish, in between, you know, I was talking about that peplum. So it, the peplum is usually scalloped. And in between each of those scallops, if you look really closely, you'll see sort of like an intensification. And that intensification is its sensory organ. Um, and it's called a repelium or repelia in plural. And the, every jellyfish, they'll have them all the way around their bell. So they usually have around eight. Some of them will have, they come in multiples of four, but 
uh, like the moon jelly has eight of them. Some of them will have way more. Some of them will have 24 or 32. But anyway, each one of those nerve, uh, those sensory structures has an eye spot or two. It'll have something called a touch plate, which is like a bunch of cilia that also can sense chemicals. So it can sort of smell what's in the water and also feel the current because the cilia will move back and forth. There's a thing called a statocyst, which is like a clump of nerve cells with a marble. It's made out of gypsum. It's like a little grain of a crystal inside of it. And that crystal rolls around on the ball of nerve cells. And wherever, whichever nerves it's touching, it's telling the jellyfish which way down is. Because the marble always, the, the gypsum crystal always, you know, is pulled down by gravity. And so each one of these little repelia is like a, its own little face. And it communicates with the nervous system around the edge of the bell and tells it how fast it should be pulsing. And if it senses danger, it'll say pulse faster and the whole jellyfish will, will swim away from whatever the danger was. So, yeah, it, based on your description, it, it almost feels like the jellyfish is a network of, of sensors that has something emergent from that network of sensors so it can you know, change its behavior, but it wouldn't be anything that we currently ascribe to something um, as intelligent as as uh, greater creatures like, like fish and whatnot, which makes sense. Yeah. So it's not cephalized in the way that we're cephalized or that most animals are, you know, have all of our control systems in one place, like in our brain. It's more that it's a distributed intelligence <laughs> that is distributed all the way around the jellyfish. And, um, and so collectively it makes these decisions. There's the, the, the coolest example of this is this, the box jellyfish, which only has four of these repelia. And, um, but each repelia has, each repelium has six eyes on it. And, uh, two of them actually have lenses and can make images and it's crazy, but the way that the jellyfish gets away with having you know, two lensed eyes and then four more that don't have lenses but can still detect information is that each one of their eyes only takes in a certain kind of information. So it pre-filters the information. Like one of them tells it, don't run into the roots of a mangrove tree. And the other one says, stay near the shore where your food is. So the jellyfish doesn't have a strong um, system like we do in our brain that can take in a lot of information and figure out what it means, it has to pre-filter the information and only take in what it needs before it gets to its nervous system. It's kind of cool. We can't talk about jellyfish without talking about stinging and poisons. Yeah. Uh, which is not something that all jellyfish have, but it's something that that has been renowned through history. I was actually struck by a quote. You have a quote in your book from Diana Nyad, the... Um, uh, champion endurance swimmer about what it felt like to be stung and it, it it's gripping where she talks about you know being dipped in hot oil I think it was uh, just about how potent some of these poisons are uh, talk about that a little bit yeah so every jellyfish does have the capacity to sting the stinging cell itself is the definition of the group, the phylum that jellyfish are in. So the jellyfish and the corals and the sea anemones are all in one group called cnidaria, and that uh, re references their nidae, which are this, the kind of Latin word for their stinging cell. So yeah, they all can, they all have stinging cells, and they all, mm, most of them have some kind of toxin in them to kill their prey. Not all of them can can penetrate through our skin. 
So like the moon jellyfish can't really penetrate through our skin and their toxins are really weak. So we can touch them and they won't bother us. But there's some that like the moon, the box jellies off of Australia, Chironex fleckeri, which can kill a person in three minutes. And it's thought to be the most potent um, toxin that in the animal kingdom. So they're not, they're definitely, you don't want to mess around with them. They're serious. Why would the jellyfish develop such a potent toxin? I mean, we're pretty hardy creatures. What is that defense sort of developed against? Is it predation amongst really big creatures in the sea? You know, I guess that's one of those answers, another one of those questions that's not answered. It's probably to, you know, they kill, fi- these these box jellies do eat fish. And if you watch, if you can Google it and you can see them hunting, they actually hunt for fish kind of the same way that a fish does. They swim very adeptly um, and they fish with their tentacles, like, you know, and snag fish out of the water. So it's a big question, you know, did they overproduce lethality and their toxin um, just to be able to kill a fish super fast so that the fish doesn't pull off their tentacle because their tentacles are sort of fragile? I don't think we know the answer to that question. It's not probably defensive so much as it is predatory. Wow. That is is crazy to think about jellyfish as hunters. Yeah. Because I think uh, my understanding of jellyfish, at least, you know, when I was growing up, is they would, they were sort of scavengers. They would eat like little plankton or other uh, items in the sea as they sort of came along to it, almost like filter feeders. But they have this hunting tendency, at least some species, that really um, promote this this idea of chasing prey, which is almost insane when you think about how their intelligence is distributed. Yeah. No, I think of them as hunters, actually. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you can't imagine. Like, they will – yes, they may eat plankton, but they hunt the plankton um, really effectively. And you can look at these videos of – very small jellyfish, um, and they will be sit and wait predators. They'll sit with their tentacles kind of splayed out around them, and a plankton will come nearby, and they will snag it with their stinging cells super fast, and then actually take that that phyto, you know whatever zooplankton prey they have, and put it right into their mouth, like bend their tentacle and feed their own mouth with their tentacle. So they are no, they're quite adept at being predators. You clearly have a passion and love with jellyfish that comes through in the book, but we have to admit that jellyfish are posing a problem, whether it's a uh, ringing a bell for issues that are coming towards us or a tangible one. Um, let, let's let talk about the big question we, we talked about up top is what is leading to this immense growth, these huge billion jellyfish blooms that are happening all across the world? I mean, and it's it's a different thing in different places, and um, and there's a whole kind of cocktail of things that cause big blooms to happen. Um, you know, invasive species is definitely an issue, and so we've widened canals around the world, and we have a, we we ship ballast water around the world and dump out dump it out in other places, and that allows jellyfish to find new environments where. They like it. And then at the same time, we're warming the waters. So we're creating places that are warmer where, you know, jellyfish may not have been able to survive in the past that now they can when they get dumped there by boat traffic. And a great 
you know, a couple great examples are um, this, there's this jellyfish that now blankets the coast of the Eastern Mediterranean. It's called the nomadic jellyfish. And it started off as an Indian Ocean animal where the water is warmer, traditionally was warmer than the Eastern Mediterranean. But it traveled through the Suez Canal and and found a home in the Eastern Mediterranean that suits it. And it doesn't have predators there. And now every summer, there'll be like power plants that have to shut down because they have sucked so many jellyfish into their water cooling systems that they just have to shut down till they can clean them all out. Um, it's, it's a really big problem. That jellyfish happens to be a really bad stinger. So it also shuts down beaches and there's lots of lost economic value for people stopping going to the beaches when there's big blooms. The other example is this, it's not exact, it's not a jellyfish. It's kind of the next family over. It's called a comb jelly. And it was transported from the East coast of the, of the Americas by ballast water to the Black Sea, where when it landed there, it had no natural predators. And it found this really lovely brackish water, kind of like not as salty water as the ocean. And it just took off um, this was in the late 80s, and it collapsed the fisheries there. And a thousand fishermen were put out of business, and the cost was estimated to be about a billion dollars. Luckily, its predator, its natural predator from the coast of the Americas, was also brought in by ballast water 10 years later. And so the ecosystem is kind of like evened out. But um, but that that first jellyfish is now kind of headed around the world. And, and I it's such a predator. I've heard scientists call it the wall of death when it when it finds a new place to invade. Wow. Yeah. I, some of this sounds like it's just the new normal, like the new normal of globalization, the new normal of climate change. And when it comes to invasive species, uh, I know of many scientists that have put to forward great policy that has made inroads when it comes to invasive species on land or in controlled environments. We're talking about the oceans are big swaths of the sea here. Is there anything we can do about these jellyfish blooms from a policy standpoint that would really control these? It's such a hard question. I, the jellyfish scientists have, you know, really suggest that marine protected areas are a, at least a good first step. Like we should be expanding the number of marine protected areas that we establish and making them no take zones. I think overfishing has been shown to be a, it opens up um, ec ecosystem niches for jellyfish to exploit. A lot of fish eat jellyfish. We're just kind of starting to understand how many fish eat jellyfish. But um, when we overfish, we, we take away all those predators. And we also take away competitors because a lot of times, at least the baby fish will eat the same thing as jellyfish. So if you can create marine protected areas where fish fish abundances can get big and spill out into the waters nearby, that can help offset some of these crazy jellyfish blooms. The other thing is, you know, coastal development, we've kind of gone at that without really thinking it through. That polyp stage that I was telling you about, it likes to live on the underside of docks of, of things. And there aren't that many undersides in nature, but there's a lot of artificial undersides, you know, like docks and jetties and oil rigs and gas rigs. And they've found that when you put in a new dock, the next year that bay will be just flooded with Medusa because the polyps will come in and just coat the underside of the dock. And then, you know, you're stuck with all these jellyfish. Um, there's stories of, of that in Tokyo Bay and also up in Puget Sound. 
So I think it's um, in terms of policy. Yeah, I'm not sure there's super specific things that are specific to jellyfish, um, but it's all the things that we should be doing to take care of our oceans. Now, this book is a much as as much about you as it is about the jellyfish, your own personal journey alongside this creature. Uh, and and I want to ask about uh, a couple interesting tidbits that came up um, as you explored this. You explored jellyfish as a food source, which is fascinating because it actually does have a lot of protein in it and basically no fat. Uh, what did you think of jellyfish as food? They're fine. They're tasty. They taste like, um, you know, they kind of have a vegetable-y edge to them, like seaweed salad. Or when I have had them in the United States, it's more seaweed salad-ish. In Japan, when I had them at this commercial jelly fisherman's house, it was even more um, of even more vegetable-y, like more like a green pepper. So crisp and fresh and tasty. Yeah. Yeah. That's not what I expected you to say. I know. Pepper. I know. It wasn't what I expected to taste either. I thought fishy, but not fish. It's not fishy at all. It's very, or at least something like oystery that would carry yeah. like some sort of saltwater, briny kind of, sort of, yeah, yeah, brininess. Yeah, I've heard that um, there are some chefs who serve moon jellies, fresh, like raw, like on the half shell, like oysters, and. Um, I think in Monterey Bay, I've heard about this, and they do, they are supposed to taste like oysters, like, but better, like fresher. So I try it. I'm yeah. going to have to check that out yeah. next time in, in Monterey. <laughs> yeah. You also tried to keep jellyfish as pets. Yeah, that was not a good idea. I would, <laughs> I don't I mean, <laughs> they actually sell those to consumers all over the place now. You can see jellyfish tanks. Um, that are sold in this, you know, design, it's not, it didn't work out for you? It didn't work out for me. Um, I think I had like maybe like one of the first generation jellyfish tanks. And so hopefully the design has been improved, but it did not, I, it was really, it's rough. It was rough on the jellyfish. It, I think um, it's, it was too small of a space and the currents were too strong inside of it. Um, and also you, I think you need a like a full filtration system to really keep jellyfish. So it was kind of like, you know, the carnival goldfish. It didn't <laughs> it was a good idea and it didn't last too long. Uh, you particularly named this book Spineless, not just because of the jellyfish connection, but really about um the search for yourself to find um a confidence, if you will, around this. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, I mean I think I had been a marine scientist and then I'd gotten the way life does it gets complicated and you sort of switch gears and do other things and I'd moved to central Texas and I was really far from the ocean and I was writing textbooks and I think the jellyfish were this way for me to even though I couldn't be near the ocean and and be studying the ocean I could still do it from from my home but then as I learned more and more about the story and how complicated it was, I realized I I needed to actually kind of claim this thing and tell my family and my friends, like, I'm going off to study, to learn more about jellyfish and and make it, um, yeah, make, it was a passion. It became a real passion. So I, I did. I went off to Japan and I chased this giant jellyfish. And then I brought my family into it and we went to Israel, um, which was the first place I fell in love with the ocean. And I I had them dive where I first dove and and 
to understand like what's at risk if we don't pay more attention to what we're doing to this planet. Is it, so as it sounds like studying jellyfish has changed the way that you talk about um, big picture items like climate change. Yeah, you know, I don't think I thought my voice was worthy of talking about those big picture items. Um, and then I realized, why wouldn't it be? I mean, I've been thinking about science for a very long time. And if I have something to say, I should say it. Um, and it's sort of my responsibility to as well. So yeah, and I also realized, you know, I, I live here in Texas, which is the center of the uh, a big part of the problem. I mean, we are we are an oil and gas place. We're the battery of the country. If Texas were a, were a country, it would it would emit as much carbon dioxide as the seventh biggest emitter in the world. I think it's I think Texas is a bigger emitter than Germany. So if we're going to ever solve this problem, you know, here I am, right in the center of it, and so I needed to really get involved with the uh, climate the climate issue. And, and talk to my representatives and talk to politicians and say, hey, we have to take this seriously. It's an interesting angle to approach this from, from the humble jellyfish, which is both something that's so beautiful and an incredible menace as well uh, as we go forward. At the end of the day, how do you feel about jellyfish, knowing all of these things about how it's being part of a changing environment, it causes economic distress in parts, but is this incredibly interesting creature that has been here hundreds of millions of years? I mean, I'm in awe of the jellyfish. I find them forever fascinating. I, I think they are, they're astonishing in their, right, their ability to be here on this planet. Um, and they'll be, they'll be just fine. Of course, jellyfish do what they do, and they've survived much worse than, or maybe not much worse, but they've survived a lot. And... Um, I, I'm not worried about jellyfish, um, but I do love them as a muse. They're an incredible muse for thinking about us on this planet and and what we should be doing and, and um, yeah, just how to get by. And also, you know, just how to see the planet as this home for things that function so differently from we do. It, it, gives, it gives everything, it makes everything around us richer. So I've yeah, I'll never stop being fascinated by them. The book is called Spineless out in bookstores right now. Julie Burwald, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a privilege. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our Patreon supporters, especially David Noel, Clark Lingren, Michael Galgool, Stephen Meyer Awald, Kyle Rayhalla, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your favorite jellyfish recipe, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Indre will be back next week. See you then.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.